Uh, If share house living taught me anything, uh, it was that helpful guidelines often equal healthy community. Uh, My experience in shared rentals taught me that where you have kind of like a list of agreed-upon expectations often stuck up on the fridge, the dishes stayed washed. Uh, People were more likely to stay friends. And the household just kind of felt more healthy. Without guidelines, dishes would often not get washed. People were more likely to get annoyed at each other. And the house would have more of an unhealthy feel to it. I actually remember in one share house anxiously listening through the walls as one of my housemates berated another housemate for having been woke up by the volume of his computer game. The shouting still haunts me. (laughs) A set of good guidelines can be the difference between a toxic living environment in which people want to avoid going home and a healthy living environment in which others love to drop over. I've lived in both kind of houses. Good guidelines make for a healthy community because they help us to do life together well for the long haul. You see, it's possible for a church community as well, even one that started well, to turn toxic through unspoken differences in expectations over how we should be relating to one another, what we should be doing. Well, in our final passage tonight, Paul is leaving the Thessalonians with some final guidelines to help them to live together in a God-honouring way for the long haul. They had started out well as a church. Paul now gives them these final guidelines to ensure they continue well beyond this letter. Now, I think we have started 2021 well as a 5pm community. After a very difficult 2020, it's been wonderful to see so many of you returning with a willingness to learn, to grow, to serve where you can. But if we want to be a church that not only starts the year well, but continues well, we need, I think, to listen to the parting words of Paul to this ancient church. Uh, There are a lot of commands in this passage. I've grouped them into five general guidelines that if we follow as a community will actually help us, I think, to be a healthy church where Christ is honoured, people are loved. So here are the five God-given guidelines that I see from this passage uh, that we're going to stick on the fridge, as it were, of the church. So one, acknowledge the work of your leaders. Two, minister relationally to one another. Three, cultivate joyful thanksgiving. Four, test the messages you hear. Five, rely on your faithful God. Helpful guidelines for a healthy Christian community. Let's dive right into the first one. First, a healthy church community is one that acknowledges the work of its leaders. Uh, Look at verse 12 to 13 in your Bibles. Uh, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you, Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Now, I suspect some of us immediately struggle with the first item on the list, right? The idea that God wants you to respect, let alone hold in the highest regard, a church leader. That might seem a little bit weird to some of you. When I think highest regard, I'm thinking neurosurgeon, astronaut, elite sports player, not necessarily church leader. 
And particularly if you've actually been burnt by a Christian leader in the past, well, this command might feel even more difficult. Well, it's worth noting at this point that Paul is not saying that you should all respect and hold in highest regard a church leader because, well, they're a church leader. See, for Paul, it's not about the title they wear, but the important work they do in teaching the life-giving gospel of Jesus and shepherding his people. When Paul thought church leader, he thought hard-working, shepherd, willing to admonish, that is, willing to correct and warn in a tactful way because they love the people they minister to. They don't want to see them drifting away from Jesus. I don't actually think God is calling you to hold in the highest regard a leader who neglects their responsibility to teach the Bible. Someone, for example, who prefers just fluffy and and warped messages that don't mention sin or judgment. And I don't think this is a call to hold in the highest regard a leader who is abusive or controlling because that's contrary to the shepherd idea of a leader that Paul has here. And I actually praise God that the vast amount of church leaders I've come across in my experience as a Christian have been the actual, the sort of person that Paul is speaking of here, I think. And as I reflect on the, the other pastors here at Bundy, the elders that God has given you, and even the growth group leaders, the, the youth group leaders, Sunday school leaders, actually what I see is a lot of hard work, care, and love that actually will say the hard stuff as well as the easy stuff. So what does it actually look like for you all to hold your leaders in the highest regard with an attitude of love, verse 13, because of their work among you? Well, let me give you a few examples. I think it means actually listening to the teaching and counsel your leaders give you. Now, as we'll see, you need to test all things, including the words of your leaders. But an attitude of respect and love says, no, I'm going to take the time to consider what my leader is saying as I sit under their teaching or receive their biblical counsel, even when that might be hard. I'm going to assume that they're speaking out of love for me, and therefore I'm not going to keep them at arm's length or just outright reject their words. But I also think it means you take the opportunity to encourage your leaders where you can. See, caring for Christians as a pastor or an elder or a growth group leader or so forth, that can actually be hard, emotional and tiring work at times. But words of encouragement into a context like that for a leader can actually put wind in the sails. It shows the leader that, that you actually value the work that they do, that you want to see them keep going in their ministry. Uh, there's a particular person that will actually send me an occasional encouraging text. I refer to this person as Barnabas, a name that in Acts tells us means the son of encouragement. Every so often, get this little encouraging message, and it does put a little bit of wind in my sails as a pastor. And I think it means actually being respectful and loving when you disagree with a leader or you think they should have done something differently. And this is important because Christian leaders are not infallible. Your leaders may have training and experience, but we're still human. We still make mistakes. But you see, an attitude of respect and love can still be in play in those moments. 
I was speaking with someone recently, and during the conversation, they actually mentioned a moment in which they thought, I could have been a bit more thoughtful in the way I said something. Now, it's never pleasant for a leader to receive uh, critique, but, but like that moment that I just um, mentioned, it can actually be appreciated and welcomed when it comes with gentleness and respect and a clear motivation to actually love their leader. And you see, the more you respect and value your leaders as they work hard for you in, the, in ministry, the more they'll be encouraged and freed up to serve you in their teaching and pastoral care ministry. See, it's actually for your good that you stick to this command. And that, I think, is the message of Hebrews 13, verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders, submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. You see, you reap the benefits when you have an attitude of respect for those who care for you in the Lord. A healthy Christian community is one that acknowledges the work of the leaders God has given them. But second, a healthy church community is one in which the members minister relationally to one another. You see, although God has placed leaders in the church, he has not limited congregational ministry to them alone. You see it there in verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, not just you leaders, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Our church stays healthy as, minister, as members relationally minister to other members. See, sometimes you might hear the language of being called to the ministry when someone uh, enters into pastoral ministry. But there's a real sense here in which God has actually called you all into ministry with each other. God is not calling you to simply be a consumer, but a contributor when you enter into a church community. You see, the consumer mindset says, well, I come to church primarily for me. I want the good Bible teaching. I want the good music. I want the good friendship. I come to get, not necessarily to give. But the contributor mindset says, well, I come to give as well as get. Are these people sitting in the building? They're not just a responsibility of the pastor or the elders. In one way, they're a responsibility of me too. God also wants me to care for them, me to warn, to encourage, to help them. God wants me to speak his word into their circumstances when I get the chance. Actually, Paul says something similar in Colossians 3.16. He says, Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and through psalms, hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. A healthy church will have members ministering to members with the gospel. And I'm actually very grateful for the way I see this kind of every member ministry taking place here in the 5 p.m. Because I know some of you have had those harder warning conversations with others. 
Uh, There have been countless times where I've seen people kind of rallying around those who are feeling disheartened in the midst of struggle or feeling weak, either spiritually or physically. I've seen you, I've seen some of you exercising patience in the middle of conflict and actually thinking carefully about how not to repay wrong for wrong, but striving to do what is good for the other person, verse 15. And you see, all of this is God honouring every member ministry. Actually, doesn't this radically transform our understanding of something like supper after the service or the social event you might go to after church? You see, that stuff is not just a nice add-on to the real ministry that takes place here and now during the service. That stuff is ministry, Because it's the moment where you get the chance to speak into other people's lives. Are you taking those opportunities? Because the 5pm service will stay healthy as you keep ministering to one another. Uh, But third, a healthy church is one that cultivates a culture of joyful thanksgiving. See, look at what it says in verses 16 and following. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, I met a guy at a kinder sausage sizzle on Friday night, and he was one of those people that just always seems happy. The sort of guy that just did not stop smiling when he was talking to me for about half an hour. But during the course of the conversation, I kind of realized he wasn't just a happy guy, but a deeply thankful guy. He told me that his family, he and his family had come over from South Africa uh, within the last couple of years and were desperately hoping to stay in Australia. He, He told me how they had actually known the fear of living in a place of very high crime and danger, but how good it was to come here and experience such peace and safety. And he spoke of how this contrast between the two places was often on his mind and how it made him so thankful for being here. And I could see how it even perhaps affected his life there as a kinder parent. You know, it was actually he and his wife were the ones helping out in the barbecue while people like me were hanging out in the background, avoiding responsibility. See, it's easy, I think, as a Christian, uh, it's easy, I think, for a Christian community to lose a sense of the wonder at the contrast between life with and life without Jesus. It's easy for us to become so familiar with Jesus that our joy and thankfulness towards him just starts to run a little bit cold. So many other things clamor for our mind's attention and, and take our, our hearts. But we do have a contrast that is worth rejoicing over. See, without Christ in our lives, we are without true hope. We are lost in our sin and rebellion against God. Uh, We have a constant desire to find meaning and purpose, but in all the wrong places. And always, God's judgment is looming over us. Life without Christ But in Christ we have hope. His death and resurrection brings forgiveness of sins. We're not lost to God, but found by him. We have true purpose and meaning because we have Christ in our life. 
We do not fear condemnation, but eternal life. That's what we look forward to. See, like this guy at Kinder, we need to actually keep coming back to the idea that God has taken us from a dangerous context of sin and death and brought us to the eternal peace and safety in knowing Christ. See, that's what will help us to live out God's will for us, verse 18, so that we keep rejoicing not just sometimes but always, as this text says. That's what will give us the motivation to pray, not just occasionally, but continually. That's what will keep us, from, uh, keep us thankful when, we, when things are going not so well, uh, as well as well, in all circumstances. And see, this is why we sing about the gospel, pray about the gospel, and preach about the gospel, the message of Jesus, every Sunday here. We want to keep it at the front and centre of our minds. And if you don't actually follow Jesus, but you're with us here tonight, welcome. But if you don't yet follow Jesus, know that he's calling out to you as well to come and actually be satisfied by him. To come and find life and the joy of that wonderful contrast for yourself. Have we become too familiar with the message of Jesus? Or does he still bring a sense of joy to our heart? A healthy church keeps the gospel front and centre of its mind so that it cultivates this kind of joyful thanksgiving that results in good works. Uh, But fourth, a healthy church community is one that will test the messages it hears. Uh, This must be true of the sermons we're listening to, which is why you've got your Bibles open, Uh, It's true of the growth groups we're in. We must do what the uh, Bereans did in Acts 17 and examine the scriptures to see if what we hear from the speaker or leader is actually biblical and therefore true. But actually, it's not directly, this this passage is not directly speaking uh, of the messages that come out of our sermons or Bible studies, is it? You might have noticed. Paul focuses his attention specifically on prophecy here. See, look at what he writes. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Now, it would appear that in the Thessalonian church, people were becoming uh, pretty suspicious and wary of prophecy. Uh, We know from the second letter to the Thessalonians Uh, that the church at that time was unsettled by certain kind of wild prophecies that had been claiming the return of Jesus had already happened. And I actually think it's fair to say that the Thessalonians here had become jaded by their experience with wacko prophecy. That's the best way to kind of sum up where I think they're at. And perhaps that's where some of you are at tonight, actually. Perhaps you've had bad experiences with people claiming to be prophets or you've seen the misuse of possible prophecy and and you're jaded by it. You're suspicious of it. Perhaps you're contemptuous of it. Well, Paul's message to the Thessalonians and to us might come as a little bit surprising. You see, he doesn't tell them to just steer clear of it, does he? What he does tell them is essentially not to throw the baby out with the bathwater 
True prophecy is a good work of the Spirit that shouldn't be quenched according to verse 19, nor should it be held in contempt. And therefore, while a discerning attitude is called for, verse 21, a dismissive attitude is not called for, verse 20. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test them all. God's word is telling us to be discerning, not dismissive. So to be discerning, we probably need to know a little bit about New Testament prophecy. Uh, The description of Agabus and his prophecies in Acts chapter 11 and 21 and the discussion in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, they all help us think about this question as well as other passages and they kind of paint the picture of prophecy in the New Testament as spirit-given revelation from God for the express purpose of encouraging and comforting believers in particular contexts. So we read in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. But while prophecy is described as a sort of spirit-prompted message to share for people's good, it is actually never described as being on the same authoritative level as Scripture. The New Testament just doesn't really describe it as infallible like it does the a word of God, the scriptures. And that makes sense because we as humans are not infallible. We can make mistakes in the way we perceive it, think about it, and therefore speak it to others. Which is why Paul says it has to be weighed or tested by God's authoritative words in the Bible. So that's my very brief summary of New Testament prophecy. Revelation from God that is given to encourage believers in particular contexts that must always be tested. We are not to be dismissive of prophecy, but discerning. That, according to God, is the healthy attitude for the, for his community of, for the community of his people. So we should have that attitude if we come across prophecy. Now, both Neil and I are happy to talk further about prophecy following the service if you've got any uh, further questions. But the point about prophecy in this passage is focused on, uh, focused on us to knowing how to handle it rightly when we come across it so that we'll be able to hold on to any good that it might bring and reject any kind of evil. So I thought it actually might be helpful to just workshop a few examples here that I've kind of come across in my own Christian experience on this topic and see how this passage would apply to it. So many years ago, I had a Christian neighbour share a prophecy that someone in his Bible study had apparently received. Uh, It was a message about the glory of heaven. Uh, In this prophecy, the man said that heaven was a place where mention of Jesus' shameful death on the cross well, that was no longer spoken of. The horror, that horror, was only be to, rem- be to remembered in this world, not heaven. I remember my neighbour saying, actually, that's how you know we're not going to be singing the old rugged cross in heaven, which is an interesting take. So what do I do with that, right? What would it look like to test that? Well, I... Go to Revelation, I think, because that appears to have the best description of heaven in the Bible and and see whether that checks out. And what do I read about in heaven in chapter 5, verse 12? Well, I actually read thousands of angels crying out, worthy is the lamb who was slain. 
See, Jesus' death actually is spoken of. In fact, it's praised. Prophecy tested, prophecy rejected. Uh, But here's another example. Uh, Some of you would have heard testimonies from one or two of our Iranian brothers or sisters who have spoken of receiving some kind of revelation as part of their conversion story. It may be something like a dream in which they were told to go and meet with a particular Christian who then shared the gospel with them. What do we do with that when we hear it? Well, God tells us not to be dismissive but discerning, doesn't he, according to this passage? Does that contradict with Scripture? Does it bring about good? From my understanding of those uh, testimonies, there's not been anything that in them that contradicts the Scripture. In fact, they appear to have been used by God for the good purpose of leading people to the Scriptures where they've found out about the forgiveness and life on offer in Jesus. This, I think, is a moment where we hold on to what is good, verse 21. But you're thinking, yeah, yeah, but I know, I've heard it. Sometimes they come so general, don't they? What about those moments which some of you may have experienced where a Christian friend or family member comes to you with an apparent prophecy that is just so general in nature that it's kind of hard to test in any real way? You know, that that kind of message that says, I feel led by the Spirit to give you the message that God loves you and has a good plan for your life. Well, I think this passage actually still helps us in those general moments. Again, remember, discerning, not dismissive. Now, there's nothing, uh, that, there's nothing in that general message that contradicts Scripture, right? The Gospel tells us that God loves us and that he's making all of us more like Jesus in all circumstances, which always means that there's a good plan for every believer in that sense. So I think I'd say you take the general encouragement which the Bible does affirm, and you just simply get on with being Christian. However, it is good to remember that prophecy, when it's given, according to the New Testament, is given for the purpose of building up the church community. So if you find that that prophecy is actually becoming an unhelpful source of curiosity, which is distracting you from thinking outside of yourself to the good of others then maybe it is just time to move on. See, that's a few examples of what I think it might look like to test all things. A healthy church community remains discerning, not dismissive. But finally, perhaps most importantly, a church community remains healthy by relying on our faithful God to help us and to keep changing us. And we need God's help, don't we? Because being a healthy church in the way he commands in this text is often difficult. It's a little like our attitude to being a physically healthy person. It's not enough to just know what we should be eating or know how we should be exercising. We actually just need to keep doing it. But that's that's often the hard part. And it's the same with the commands God has given us here for our health spiritually, as a body of believers. We might agree that they're good, but we just find them hard to do. You see, sometimes it's hard to hold our leaders in the highest regard. Sometimes it's hard to feel motivated to minister to a fellow brother or sister. Sometimes it's hard to rejoice and give thanks and pray. Sometimes it's hard to be discerning and not just dismissive. 
See, if we have any hope for change, it actually can't simply come from our own willpower because most of us, if we're honest, well, we lack that willpower. It has to come from God. And that's the great promise I think we're given in Paul's final prayer and benediction in verses 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit Uh, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. You see, the great hope of this benediction is telling us that God is committed to making us the healthy community he wants us to be. He will make sure that we will continue on and that we'll be welcomed into his presence on the day of the Lord. He who brought us to salvation will also sanctify us, that is, help us to become more and more like Jesus as we move towards that day. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. And God really is faithful, isn't he? I mean, he's shown us this in the death of his son. He who did not spare his son for us, but gave him up for a sac- as a sacrifice for our sin, as Lachlan so beautifully shared... That kind of God is not about to abandon us now, but remain with us to help us. He is faithful to help us as we commit to being the community he wants us to be. And you see, think of what that says to the people pleaser who feels that they could never muster up enough courage to minister that hard truth in love to a friend. See, it tells them that they'll actually have divine help in that moment. Think of what it says to the person who's been hurt deeply by a brother or sister. It's saying God will actually give them the grace they need to be patient and not return wrong for wrong. Think of what it says to those of us who are prone to grumpiness and grumbling. It says that God can grow in us an attitude of joy and thanksgiving in all circumstances. It says to those of us who are prone to being contemptuous of a particular work of the Spirit, actually God can humble us so that we're discerning, not dismissive. Rely on your faithful God. Helpful guidelines for a healthy community. Uh, After asking for prayer and a kiss of greeting, which some of us find uh, a little bit concerning, I'm sure. Uh, Paul finishes his letter, this letter, with these words: "I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you." Uh, verse 27 reminds us that this letter, these guidelines for, uh, are for the good of everyone in Jesus's church. They help us, as His people, stay healthy. They help us do life together for the long haul. It's as though God is saying in verse 27, I'm sticking these words up on the fridge, read them, live by them. And actually that's my prayer for us, that we will be a community of people who do that, who acknowledge the work of our leaders, minister relationally to one another, cultivate joyful thanksgiving, test the messages we hear, and always rely on our faithful God. God's helpful guidelines for a healthy Christian community. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would apply your word to our hearts now.
You are the God who saves and the God who sanctifies. So please do a good work in us so that we might be a community of people that is healthy, healthy in our love for you and in our love for one another. Amen.